0: And gospel with Dr. Helissa Elwine. Join us around our Shabbat dining table as we explore the Torah portion. You know, the interesting thing about King Herod is they say as he refurbished that second temple, that it was even more beautiful than the first. The improvements that he made, the money that he invested into it, it had everything but the glory. Everything but the glory. And I think that's kind of the message. That I think that's the the place I want to go, is sometimes we can pour a lot of energy into what on the surface looks like a really good thing, It it feels very holy, it looks very holy, it's kind of biblical, but we always have to to ask ourselves, why am I doing this? Is this just fulfilling, let's get a little psychological here, is this just fulfilling my self-esteem needs? Because that's exactly what he was doing. He was solidifying his position politically among the Jews so that there wouldn't be an insurrection, so that the Romans would let him keep his spot. It was all about Herod. And that's our question. You know, as we engage the word, as we try to walk in the word, as we try to be discipled in the word, we're all going to have a gift, at least one. There's some I would rather have. And he says we should covet the better gifts. But I know certainly that there are gifts I don't have. And we have to recognize that too. But when he does give us a gift or when he does give us an insight, the first question we have to ask ourselves is am I engaging in this? Am I immersing in this? Am I spending money on this? Am I spending time on this? Am I taking up other people's time on this to fulfill my self-esteem needs? Do I need to be seen and heard? Because there are other ways of doing that. That's what your family is for, is to help fulfill those needs that we all have to feel like we're loved and accepted no matter what we do. And when we don't necessarily believe that we are loved and accepted no matter what we do, we tend to try to use other things to find that reinforcement. We find those things that make people look at us and admire us and think we're smart or beautiful or talented or whatever. If we're using his word for that purpose, trust me, it's not going to end well. The glory belongs to him. And so I'm just here to encourage you to stay on that track. Stay on that track because there's a lot of battles out here. We've talked last week about Edom, the red one, the red beast, and how it's really important to get that thing under control by the spirit because the red beast can actually work within what looks on the surface to be a holy Bible thing. The, the beast can definitely commandeer it. So I just want to take a passage out of this week's Torah portion, which is Vayigash, I believe, and drew near is what it means. And I just wanted to clarify, Vayigash, we know that it's talking about when Judah finally draws near to his brother Joseph, not even knowing who Joseph is. He's finally willing to go to bat for Benjamin. He knows Benjamin will either be killed or spend the rest of his life as a slave. And the same Judah that was willing to throw Joseph into a pit, kill him, or sell him, has somehow had this great transformation in the years that Joseph has been gone. So not even knowing he's talking to Joseph, he's willing to take everything on himself that's about to be laid on Benjamin. And he doesn't even know if Benjamin's innocent or not that's a brother. That's a brother. And so when it says, by and drew near, yes, it's talking about Judah drawing near to Joseph. But think, who is is he drawing near to? His brother that he doesn't even recognize. Sometimes we recognize a brother. The brother doesn't recognize us. Are we still willing to draw near, regardless of whether we will be recognized, regardless of where we think, well, this brother's just pretty much going to relegate me to slave status. Yikes. So but if you'll turn to Genesis forty-four, eighteen through 34, I just want you to get the, the flavor of how Judah has changed since he deceived his father at first into thinking that Joseph was killed and letting his father grieve all these years as though Joseph were killed. He was the one, remember, that wanted to kill Joseph. He wasn't the, oh, let's sell him. He wanted to kill him. So Judah goes up to Joseph and says, Oh my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's ears and let not your anger burn against your servant. For you are like Pharaoh himself. My Lord asked his servant saying, Have you a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, we have a father, an old man, and a young brother, the child of his old age. His brother is dead, and he alone is left of his mother's children, and his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, bring him down to me that I may set eyes on him. We said to my Lord, the boy cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die. Then you said to your servants, unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you shall not see my face again. When we went back to your servant, my father, we told him the words of my Lord. And when our father said, go, go again, buy us a little food. We said, we cannot go down. If our youngest brother goes with us, then we will go down. For we cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Do you hear how profound that statement is? We cannot see the man's face unless our brother is with us. Are our brothers having a hard time seeing the face of Yeshua right now? Something has to change in the relationship. Then your servant, my father, said to us, you know that my wife bore me two sons. One left me, and I said, surely he has been torn to pieces, and I have never seen him since. If you take this one also from me and harm happens to him, you will bring down my gray hairs in evil to Sheol. before my father all my life. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. Finally, have you ever felt like that? Like you just resisted and resisted and resisted and and finally you came to the place. You said, if I perish, I perish. We're gonna do the right thing here. And then just like the relief of holding all that resistance and hiding everything inside all that time, it just kind of, man, it's better be a servant in the house of the Lord than a thousand days anywhere else, isn't it? So some people say that this was the moment that Judah was awarded royal authority over the tribes. They say, this is it. This change right here that was so profound that he became uh, associated with the scepter over the other, the servanthood that you hear in this. Basically, it's almost a repentance speech that probably should have been made to his father. But nevertheless, he knows dad's going to find out at this point, right? (laughs) The jig is up. But what has he done here? He's conquered the red one. He's conquered Edom. Because remember, your soul is the red one. Your soul, your appetite, emotion, desire, and intellect. It's associated with Edom, the red one. It's your nefesh in Hebrew. And here we see what Judah wants. He wants to feed others, not to be fed. He's overcome his jealousy of his brother. He's overcome murderous thoughts toward his brother. He's overcome not giving honor for the wishes of his father. He's confessed his relationship with Tamar to make sure that there will be righteous offspring that can fulfill the covenant of promise, that they will inherit the land. You realize he's fixed everything that Edom never did. Esau never fixed these things. He was more about, give me some of that red stuff then let me risk my life to go buy a little food. Edom never got over wanting to kill Joseph. Even though he was given that opportunity, the sages point out some language within the text that says, you know, really Esau wanted to bite Joseph on the neck when he hugged him and he was prevented from doing that. He still wanted to kill him, but he realized he couldn't. Just like Levon realized he couldn't. But Judah has overcome this murderous intention toward Joseph, dishonoring his father, By selling a brother, he's over that now. He's not going to let go of Benjamin no matter what. If Benjamin goes down, you get the idea Judah's going down with him. He's confessing an indiscretion with Tamar. He's saying, you know what? I was willing for the bloodline to be cut off, but I'm over that now. What did Esau do? He went out and married two Canaanite Canaanite women, idolaters, without his father's permission. Never got over it. Now, did he kind of repent later? Kind, of, well, it depends on what your version of repentance is because he doesn't give up those two. He just goes over and he gets a wife from Ishmael. and says, oh, you were serious about that. Okay, let me see if I can fix this my way. He should have divorced those two idolatrous Canaanites and then found a righteous woman according to his mother and father's instructions. And so being concerned about the offspring is something we have to be concerned about. It matters who you marry. Because once you marry to them, and you find out that they're not really willing to live according to scripture, now we got to pray them through. And you're going to have a lot of heartache. And it won't always work out. And the children get a mixed message. And you know what? They're going to bear the brunt of your Esau. Edom never fixed these things. In fact, Even the the idea of selling his birthright for food. He didn't care about the offspring. He says, what does it matter? Because I'm going to die anyway. He's not going to die. There's food everywhere in the camp. What he means is, I have a lifetime and then I'm going to die. The promises that go with this birthright aren't even going to be realized till the end of time. I'm not going to wait that long for the good stuff. I'm going to go ahead, eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. That's the mindset. Judah's over that. He says, I'm going to be a servant today because what's in the future is much more important than my freedom. And that's just it. We need freedom for Edom. We need to quit serving appetite, emotion, desire, and intellect. It will lead us even in places as a believer that we don't need to be. That's the promise. We can work out our salvation, but we do have to work it out. We have to walk it out. We have to discipline our Esau with the Spirit of Jacob. So kind of back to okay, did Judah really get authority in this moment? The sages say it was not exactly then, nor was it when he was the first chosen to bring those gifts of dedication to the tabernacle. Nor was it when he was appointed to take the first step in any movement that the camp made. Once the the cloud and the, the ark set out, Judah had to take the first step. They say it was not any one of these things. Each of these little hints To Judah's authority, they were preparation. They were foreshadowing. And they say when he actually received full authority, it was not until Judah entered the land and Joshua died. Because the first thing you read in the book of Judges after Joshua dies is that Judah was given leadership to go up. He was chosen to go up, it says, and take the land. Take the land from the Canaanites. When we think of it being about a land, a covenant, and a people, Judah took responsibility for the people when he drew near to Joseph. He took responsibility at Sinai for the covenant with every other tribe. And when he enters the land, now he's given authority to conquer the land itself. And you see how it became complete at that moment? Land, covenant, and people. And that's what it says in Judges 1.1. It says it came about after the death of Yehoshua that the sons of Israel inquired of the Lord, saying, Who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? The Lord said, "Yehuda shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. Well, if we keep reading, we find out he goes to this tribe, Shimon, that just kind of lost his identity. He was like the least of the tribes in terms of inheritance. He's just like, okay, Shimon and Levi, not a great recipe when they're together, but you split them up and put them in other dishes and they'll be fine. Right? I feel that way about chocolate and cherries. They don't go together. You split them up and they'll be fine. But he does. He goes to Shimon and says, come help me. And so Yehuda, who at this point, we're beginning to get the idea, yes, there's an authority that rests with Judah, even goes back to the blessings. He'll have the scepter. Until Messiah comes, until Shiloh comes. And he goes to the least of the tribes and says, come help me. He's starting to see that Joseph's dream was not really about dominance and power. It was about all the brothers being together in the field. And Joseph was going to be instrumental in bringing those brothers together in the field. Sometimes we can look at a dream. We can look at at something. And 10 years later, we have a completely different perception of what we saw back then. And hopefully it's better than the first time we saw it. And so it's, again, it's about leadership. It's not about ownership. There's a difference. Leadership, not ownership ownership. So let's look at some things here about the oracles. They call them the oracles of God. When we read the letter to the Romans, it talks about the oracles of God. The oracles are actually the commandments. It's the word. And the first time that we're going to see actually Amar, if you know a little bit of Hebrew, you know Omer means speaking. Omer, Omerot, Omri, Omerot. You need to know a little bit of Hebrew. You need to be able to read your strongs. If nothing else, read your strongs. It says in Deuteronomy 33, 9, for they observed your word, emratecha, okay, the root of that is amar, the the word, the speaking, and kept your covenant. So the word, the oracles, are associated with keeping the covenant. And they accomplish something very specific. We're gonna keep looking at that particular word for oracles, because we'll find out two things about the oracles of the word. Number one, they teach us what sin is. And number two, it produces reverence for Adonai. Because at some point, once you find out what sin is, you realize, uh uh-oh, the only one that can help me with this is going to be Adonai himself. The one who made the commandment is going to have to be the one who can make me stand in the commandment, because by myself, I might be in trouble. And so to show you these two purposes for the oracles... And it's the word, it's the Torah, it's the commandments. These are all equivalent expressions. Psalm 119.11 says, Your word I have treasured in my heart that I might not sin against you. So it teaches you what sin is. And then if you go on to verse 38, it says, Establish your word, establish your oracles to your servant as that which produces reverence for you. So Psalm 119 reinforces what we know about the word itself. It teaches us what sin is, and that creates a reverence for Adonai. Now, the Greek equivalent to that is logios, and that's going to take us to, well, we'll get to this passage there in Romans in just a second, but let's stop here and think about Israel being warned as they have received the oracles at Mount Sinai, and as Moses taught them the oracles in 40 years in the desert, they're also warned that there's going to be false or misleading oracles. That tells you that these false or misleading oracles might actually be based in the oracles themselves. It might be a distortion of the Torah. It might be a distortion of the word. And in Lamentations 2.14, we can see that's exactly what happened. It says, your prophets have seen for you false and foolish visions. They have not exposed your iniquity so as to restore you from captivity, but they have seen for you false and misleading oracles. Same word. So what's happened? The meat of it there says... In this teaching, and these oracles that they're teaching you, the way that they're teaching them to you, your sin is not being exposed to you. You're being allowed to continue in your sin. If you continue in your sin, how can you possibly reverence Adonai? How can you possibly have the spirit there working in your life to discipline your red one? You can't. If the oracles are false, if the information is false and misleading, it's not discipling you. It's instead distracting you and allowing you to continue to do things that are what you think, you feel, and you want. And we know that at Mount Sinai was the revelation of the oracles, Exodus 20, 18 through 19. It says when they were standing there at Mount Sinai and the oracles are being revealed to them, they're trembling. They're trembling all over. Have you ever just read a commandment and it made you physically tremble and think like you were going to fall down or die? I haven't either, but I should. If we think, like, even at Shavuot, we're trying to put ourselves back in, well, take your feet, your shoes off, right? Okay, back in the sand with them. And have you ever, even on Shavuot, as you heard the commandments revealed, has it ever just made you shake with reverence? How short have I fallen? And I already know these things. It's not yet produced, the fear and trembling. You realize in Revelation, the reason these these judgments keep coming. It says because they would not repent, they would not repent, they would not repent. But after the earthquake on Jerusalem there is a repentance. I don't know if you remember that. Like they reverence Adel Nye, like okay we get it now, we get it now. We need to reverence him before he makes an earthquake. And then in Acts seven thirty eight, in, in case we think these were different oracles that somehow there was Mount Sinai oracles and then Yeshua invented brand new ones. It says, this is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness, together with the angel who was speaking to him on Mount Sinai and who was with our fathers and he received living oracles to pass on to you. So the oracles being passed on, they're even more alive in Yeshua. But again, there's a danger even to those following Yeshua and were warned repeatedly in the book of Acts, in the letters from the apostles, that already there's false teachers out there among you, distracting you. They're giving you bad information, but there's, they're enough like us that that's why you're being deceived. They're using some of the same language, they're using scripture, and they're twisting. So here's the question. Who was entrusted to preserve these oracles over time? Judah. And all Israel, they all stood at the foot of the mountain. it wasn't concealed for them from them, even more than the priestly manual. every one of you can go to the book of Leviticus and learn how to be a priest, except the difference is if you're not a Cohen, then you're learning how to be a priest to the nations, whereas the Kohanim were the priests to Israel. but the patterns are there, and we know that of course Judah was sent into captivity in Babylon during that seventy years in Babylon something happened and and you hear a lot of hebrew roots people kind of get their back up because they're offended that so much jewish literature will put jew instead of israel don't be offended by that that was their identity after they came out of babylon even in yeshua's day it didn't matter if you were from the tribe of asher remember like or if you were from the tribe of benjamin like paul they still called you a jew That's not something to be offended about. In fact, that's the greatest compliment probably that you can receive. Because in that 70 years, they didn't lose the Torah. They didn't lose the oracles. Now, does that mean their observance was that great when they got back? It was messy. It was super messy, but they never lost the oracles. And so whether you see them as strictly the tribe of Judah, or you see that at least the tribes that continue to worship in Jerusalem as probably being part of why, okay, there's all these tribes in here in Judah, but they're just being called Jews now. It's okay. You have to know the context to know, is talking about like a Jew from the tribe of Judah? Or are you talking about a Jew that's representing all Israel? for a specific period of time. They continued to be identified with that covenant word at Sinai. In contrast, the the tribes that were exiled by Assyria lost that affiliation. They turned loose of the oracles. That was no longer their identity. The Jews and the subsets of the tribes of Israel among them, they never turned loose of it. Did they suffer periods of apostasy? They definitely did. Did they suffer a second exile? definitely did. Have they ever turned loose of the oracles? Is there, is there any problem today with finding either an English or a Hebrew text of the Torah? Are those, you know, from Genesis to Malachi? No problem. You probably got a little one at least when you were in Sunday school, when you were a kid, which we're running out of a generation that remembers Sunday school and Shabbat school. Shabbat school. And so that takes us again to the Logios, of the oracles. In Romans 3, 1 through 2, Paul's asking, he's trying to explain to the Romans the relationship of the unbelieving Jews. He says, then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the benefit of circumcision? Great. In every respect. Wow. Think about that. In every respect, they have an advantage. That's not what I'm hearing much today. He says, first of all, that they were entrusted with the oracles of God. They never turn loose and they never will. There will always be a remnant. And so nothing really has changed in that respect. And then Paul goes on. If we continue reading that passage in Romans, he starts explaining to the Gentiles that, look, you're going to have to come to faith like Abraham, called out of idolatry, called out of those world systems. And once you're saved in Messiah Yeshua, we know that you're not yet physically circumcised. We know that you don't know all the oracles of Elohim and he says that's okay because the same thing that applied to your father Abraham now applies to you it was a long time before Abraham was circumcised because he had some walking to do and some learning to do when he decided to come out of Ur of the Chaldees he didn't come out downloaded with 613 commandments He had to learn, and he had to do the last thing he was told to do. And so many times we keep praying for more of you, more of you, and he's like, well, just do the last thing I told you to do, and I'll give you a little bit more. But you bowed up on me on this, I'm not going to do that. Because if you don't build that foundation, that's not going to help you. So we have to quit judging one another and saying, well, they haven't learned how to do this yet. They haven't learned how to do that yet. That's not the way that you look at your brother. Because the Spirit is dealing with them according to their immediate need, not according to what you need. But what we find out, if we keep reading, is that even the Hebrews had been lured away from these elementary principles of the Torah. The oracles, there's a simplicity in that, in just learning how to keep the commandments. And they've been lured away. Hebrews 5.12 says, "For Though by this time you ought to be teachers. You have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God, and you have come to need milk and not solid food. So even those who grew up with the Torah have somehow been lured away. And it's not that they're completely away from the Torah. It's just that they've left the elementary principles. They've started chasing something else. So that takes us back to the red one. Even if you're a believer, the red one is still your public enemy number one, and your private one, I guess. When that soul, the nefesh, appetite, emotion, desire, and intellect, when it's not disciplined of the spirit, when it's not disciplined of the ruach, it's still going to act out. And that's what we know. Edom symbolizes that red one, and it can... You know, we can be referring to an unsaved soul, someone who hasn't come to faith in Messiah Yeshua yet, or someone who has been saved. They're just spiritually undisciplined. They're maybe know the oracles, and they just kind of pick the ones they want to do. And they pick the ones they want to break. And they pick the ones they want to dance in between. That undisciplined soul, I mean, even Jacob had to go and learn to have his soul disciplined. He thought through the power of his mind, he could kind of circumvent things and make them happen better. But our appetites, emotions, desires, and intellect are going to pull downward. But the ruach, the spirit, is always trying to pull us upward. The view's better up there. What's going to happen, though, is often the red one, it will make you think you're going up when actually it's pulling you down. And that's what happened. The Hebrew study habit somehow got dragged down. Their appetite for excitement and intellectual stimulation— didn't help them. They were learning things that made them feel much smarter than they were. And that's the deception. That's how the red one can even come into the life of a believer and begin to seduce you away into chasing things that aren't going to help you grow. In fact, what you'll find find out is it will begin to dominate, control, and take over your life. And all of a sudden, you've abandoned the fundamental principles of the Torah and right living every day, the things that will change your life today and make you that better witness for Messiah Yeshua. And all of a sudden you're off chasing topics that has never changed a person's life for the better. It's never resurrected anyone from the dead. It's never healed anyone. Is it fun? Sure. It's absolutely fun. Is it fascinating? Sure. You got the intellectual stimulation. You're going to feel so smart when you learn those things. But has it ever brought a congregation together? Point that out. Show me where that thing, and I'm not going to name the thing. I might later, I might lose myself here, but has that thing ever built a congregation? Built up a congregation? Ask yourself that. Try to find an example of where it has dramatically changed people's lives for the better and made them a better witness to the oracles of God. Remember your spirit, it's your most godlike feature. You are most like Elohim in the spirit realm, not in the soul. Yes, he does have a soul. He has actually the real soul. We have the parable of a soul. If you want to find out what a true soul is, you go to the scripture and you find those places where he talks about his soul, what he hates and what he loves. And then you match yours up beside that and say, okay, if my soul is behaving like his soul, then I am a reflection of him. But the spirit, remember, it's from up here. It's from the heavenly places. Your spirit came from Elohim, but your soul and your body did not exactly take the same route, <laughs> okay? Okay. Ecclesiastes 12, 7 says the dust returns to the earth as it was, that's your body, and the spirit, the ruach, returns to God who gave it. So your body goes down when you die, and your spirit goes back up. You say, well, what about that soul you keep talking, where does Esau go? (laughs) Well, let's quit calling him Esau, okay? Your soul, the soul of a believer, that's the question. Is it going to go up or down? Well, it depends on your relationship to Yeshua, because Yeshua came to save your so, not your spirit. Your spirit's just going to go back where it came from. The great thing about Yeshua, he can do more than save your soul. He can also resurrect your body to give your soul the vessel back. And then the spirit can also, and they all be one happy family again. If we read through Psalm 139, that section there in 13 through 16, David's discussing the formation of the soul or the Nephesh, with the body. And he says, in the lower parts of the earth, Okay, we live in the lower parts of the earth right now. We don't live in the Garden of Eden. We don't live in the heavenlies. So the soul and the body, they're, they're in cahoots all the time. And they'll work against you. Because remember, the soul is in your body to keep it alive. They desperately need one another. You say, when do I listen to my soul? If you're telling me to listen to my spirit, when can I listen to my soul? If your soul tells you, there's a bear, run, believe it. Okay, the bear will kill you, probably. It's a life force. It keeps you alive. And your body needs that appetite, emotion, desire, and intellect. Otherwise, it'll starve to death. It'll never reproduce itself. It'll do stupid things all the time. You need your intellect. But the unredeemed soul, as we read through the literature about, you know, going to hell and all that, the unredeemed soul descends. Just as your body's going to go down to the earth, the soul's going to go down too, but the spirit is going to go up. That's why you need that soul and body, again, to be disciplined of the spirit, because we want everything to rise. In the last day, your body, too, will be able to rise. And so that's why I think we're all susceptible to what I would call one-note topics. It's like a, a thing we get attached to. It's our favorite topic. And there's all kinds of them out there. And perhaps this is what the Hebrews had done that caused them to neglect the fundamentals of the Torah. And as we read the letters that the apostles were writing, we get little hints as to the stuff that people had been distracted into. What distracted them? Why did they stop growing in the basic food of the Torah? See, those elementary fundamentals of the Torah, that's where you grow. It may not be that exciting to your soul until your soul learns to trust your spirit. And then when your spirit says, this is exciting, then your soul will begin over time to grow in faith that your spirit knows what it's talking about. Because your spirit is based on, it is written, not, I think, I feel, I want, And I think that what happened was that the Hebrews, among others, hadn't been lured to the carnival. And, you know, we can't blame it on the internet. The same carnival rides are running today in the body of Messiah. They're not eating their basic foods. They're eating cotton candy. They're eating corn dogs, funnel cakes. And it's all good, but you're going to have a little bit of a tummy ache on the way home. And I think that's what's been happening. When you go to the carnival, have you ever noticed that no matter which ride you get on, it always ends up back where you started? That won't happen with the fundamental principles of the Torah. You will grow every day in that field. But if you get on the Ferris wheel, you're going to have to get off where you got on. The view's spectacular. You can see everything. I'd be so smart. Like, I can see everything that nobody else can see right here. I even know what shape the earth is. Can't you see it's flat up here? I see everything up here. But you know what? You stay on that Ferris wheel, you'll starve to death. Unless you've got somebody throwing you donuts and corn dogs and cotton candy. What about the roller coaster? Is that not the most fun thing ever? And so many of these topics, they're, they are their mind benders. Like I studied this and look what I found. Look how fast it goes. And I can hold my hands up and I won't fall out. The tilt-a-whirl? When the bottom falls out, you know what? You're eventually going to get right out where you got on. The merry-go-round, if you like it slower, it never goes anywhere. It just goes in circles. I hate to break the news, but see, there's all sorts of information out there. They're just going to take you in circles and take you in loops until you get sick of yourself because they're not the basic food of the Torah. They're carnival rides, And sometimes when we get to the top of the Ferris wheel, and that Ferris wheel stops, and you hope they're just letting people on, that it's not broken, uh, because you're not sure you want to stay there forever. You're looking at the view, and you think, why can't anybody else see what I see? Why am I the only one in the world? Why can't they just accept this? Why are they resisting the Spirit? Maybe it's because they're out working in the field instead of swinging on the Ferris wheel with you. Scripture is not a carnival. Yeah, the cotton candy, it'll tickle that intellectual sweet tooth, but you know what? You're still going to get sick. You weren't meant to eat that much sugar. What about the fun house or the freak show? Say, well, I don't, you know, go out the same way I came in those. You're not going to see anything in there that's not distorted. It's a carnival. And we tend to be a generation that rejects and mistrusts authority, even though time after time, scripture has told us where to find it. It's not been withheld from us. Why do we hate authority? Why do we turn on the news today and all we can see is from the river to the sea? Why are these sorts of things even tolerated? Well, we're building on the foundations of the 60s. That's come home to roost. Hating authority has come home to roost. And I feel, I mean, I am so glad I, I, Baruch Hashem, every morning that I'm not a teenager today, because I don't know if I could stand with the garbage that's being thrown at them constantly, the propaganda that's being thrown at them constantly. Grown ups don't even know the history of Israel, grown ups don't even know the Bible. Why are we making fun of this generation when they've had no teachers, no mentors who would teach them the fundamentals of the oracles of God that would help them to grow and to discern the spirit from the soul, the truth from a distortion. Nahum 115, it says, Behold on the mountains the feet of him who brings good tidings, that's the gospel, who proclaims peace. O Judah, keep your appointed feasts, perform your vows. For the wicked one shall no more pass through you. He is utterly cut off. Do we want to cut off the wicked one? Yeah. There's the key. There's the key. In fact, where it says perform your vows, those were done at the three pilgrimage feasts, by the way. You, you paid your vows at uh, Pesach, at Shavuot, and Sukkot. And it's not that the other tribes shouldn't keep the feasts. It's simply pointing out to us that there was something given to Judah. There was an authority given to Judah that establishes those feast times for us. We don't have to wander around and make up new calendars. We don't have to dig in the desert to find something that's been hidden for 2,000 years. He has never concealed the covenant from us because Judah never let go of it, ever. Even Paul didn't change who the Jews were. He said they were given the oracles of God. It's the same oracles they received at Mount Sinai. And they have continued in an uninterrupted line in spite of, yes, exile, apostasy, all the things that have befallen the Jews over the years. ever let go of the Torah. Genesis 49 10, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from a lawgiver from beneath between his feet until Shiloh come and unto him shall be the gathering of the people. Shiloh is thought to be a euphemism for Messiah. You say, well, Messiah has come. Well, yes, but he's taken a little break and he will come again. So until Shiloh come again, I can't imagine that the scepter and this position of lawgiver has also been stripped from the tribe of Judah. Who went back into the land first, even before 48? Is that not the pattern that we saw in Judges 1? Let Judah go first, and then he'll start collect the tribes. He'll do what he needs to do in the right timing. Timing, 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 and it is everything. Yes, it, it was a progression of things, land, covenant, people for Judah, but it rests in his hand. Zechariah eight nineteen, we just had a fast yesterday, the tenth of Tibet. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the fast of the fourth, the fast of the fifth, the fast of the seventh, and the fast of the tenth months will become joy, gladness, and cheerful feast for the house of Judah. So love, truth, and peace. And then you have to do a little work, you know, to find out why were they fasting? And why would that be turned into joy, gladness, and cheerful feast? Does it say Judah was wrong here because these things aren't specifically in the Torah? Judah was wrong to institute these fasts? No, it says, I'm going to take them. I'm going to turn them into joy. Does he say the Israelites were wrong to inter- you know, introduce a water-pouring ceremony when I didn't specifically say to do it in the Torah? Or did Yeshua actually stand up and validate and say, it's pointing to me. They know a lot about Messiah. They just haven't seen that face yet. And then some say, well, there, it's a political nation. We don't really care about that because it's just a political entity. It's a political state. Well, wasn't Nehemiah a politician? Wasn't Daniel? Didn't they work within the political structure of Babylon and Persia, Medo-Persia? Absolutely. It was, you start reading the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, you don't get, you can't miss the politics. And it was Messy. This this return to the temple, it was messy. The return to Jerusalem was messy. The return to the land was messy when they came back from exile. And here's some of the problems they encountered when they came back. Some of the Jews started marrying idolatrous wives and fathering children. There was political intrigue and accusations that are constantly being carried back to Medo-Persia that were instigated and stirred by the local Arabs. There were terror attacks by Arabs while Jews restored Jerusalem's walls. There was selfish individualism, people building their own houses, but they were unwilling to work to come to the temple and to rebuild the temple. The house of Adonai is like, you've got nice houses to live in, and I don't even have a ceiling in my house. Out there running around, taking care of themselves. Blatant Shabbat and feast breaking. Blatant. Nehemiah had to run the merchants out. On Friday, locked the gates and put guards on the gates to keep the merchants out. They wouldn't have been coming in if the Jews hadn't been buying. So was it messy? When the exile starts that process of return, yes, it's political. Yes, it's messy. Yes, there's Sabbath breaking. But there's always a remnant that's going to hang tough. In fact, I think these messy things are evidence of return. They're not excuses to sever ourselves from Judah. Well, some people are using them as excuses. I say they're not excuses. I say it's just the pattern. Go back and read the Bible. It's messy when we come back. And so remember, two things highlighted in Scripture, especially associated with Judah, is the land itself and the feasts. Carnivals are lots of fun. We're not trying to kill Edom. You need your soul. Otherwise, we call you dead. But we're trying to discipline that red one inside of us. Every now and then, it's okay to go to the carnival. Just make sure it's a safe carnival. Watch your wallet. Be careful what you eat there. Just know up front the games are rigged, okay? But what I really mean is beware. There's lots of information out there, and I'm not blaming it on the internet because these things have been back there since the beginning. These twists, these self-serving directions, they've been there from the beginning. Beware of anything that would distract you from the appointed time. And in this day and age, it comes through calendar reconstructions. I don't even know what to call them. Because often we're, we're reading one point of view about those calendars, but we never look at what some of the other experts say. Like, hey, listen, you're reading things that were pretty much part of a library. If I went to the local library, could I probably find a book on witchcraft? Does that mean everybody in Loosedale is a witch? It means it's in your library. Somebody kept the book. There's all sorts of opposing information, but because we're on the Ferris wheel and we like the way it makes us feel like, ooh, an in time revelation just for me. Why can't the world understand this? They can't understand it probably because they're following the Spirit instead of sitting on the Ferris wheel swinging. We know that we've just read the scriptures. We see that Judah has a special affiliation with the appointed times, with the feasts, They never lost their grasp on the oracles of Adonai. Never been compromised. The text has always been there. So when we start searching in the desert for alternate calendars, when we need an email to know when the month starts, we might be on the wrong track because certain things are given for a certain period of time until Shiloh comes. I think you're okay with your brother Judah because if we separate brothers, isn't that the most wicked of the abominations? The seventh is one who separates brothers. Judah drew near. And I think now he might need Joseph to draw near and just humble himself and say, I'm willing to just be a slave if it won't kill the family. Because if if we lose Benjamin, it's going to be such sorrow to the father when we're trying to kill each other out and see these little doctrines can turn into that, trying to you know, slice off people out of the family, disinherit them, devalue them, to the point there's a lot of anti-Semitism today within Hebrew roots. And I'm like, how could that possibly happen? How could that possibly happen? And that's what it was in uh, Acts where he said, there were people who went out from us, but they were not of us. They never were us. They might've used some of the same language. They might've had tzitzit, who knows? But they were never there for the same reason. When we study from the Torah portions, that is the foundation. That's the methodical study. Those are the elementary principles that are going to help you grow properly. So if you do walk into the carnival, you can guard your heart and say, that rides for me, but definitely I'm not getting on that one. In fact, there is a way to experience excitement that's more authentic And it comes from the spirit realm, because remember, it comes from above. And there is a a joy when you know it is written, and now you recognize that in that commandment. You recognize how it can apply in your own life to improve your own life, and that's where the joy is. It doesn't have to be a Ferris wheel. There's treasures in the field of the word. We just have to cultivate them patiently. I think that's why they say the deal was sealed during the time of Boaz, because he welcomed Ruth. And he told her, stay in my field. I can't, there's other fields out here, but if you'll stay in mine, I know I can protect you. I can't speak to what's going on out there in those other fields. And that's what I tell people sometimes when I'm teaching. I'm like, look, don't ask me about so-and-so's teaching, so-and-so's teaching, this you read on the internet, that there. I don't know what they're doing. I would never have a moment to myself if I just tried to keep up with what everybody is teaching out there in the world. But I can guarantee you this, I do my best to cultivate a field where you're safe. That's what concerns me, whether you're safe, not whether you can sit at the top of the Ferris wheel and see the world. I want it to be transformative in your life. And if you have a teacher like that, that you know that their field is safe, be careful where you wander because you're going to, number one, you're going to wear them out, and you're going to wear yourself out. James 5, 7 says, therefore be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. The farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets the early and the late rains. You too be patient, strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is near. Do not complain, brethren, against one another, so that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. And so when people are deceived by information, bad information, you know they usually mean well. They sincerely believe what they've been deceived to believe. Eve sincerely believed what the snake told her which set her apart from Adam. We don't know what his deal was. Like, okay, no, she's too pretty. You're not going to take her. (laughs) I'm going with her. I'll eat it. Even though I know what's wrong with it. We don't know. Or if he just said, looks good, I'm going to eat it anyway. We don't know really what went through his mind. He just said, the woman you gave me. But Eve was deceived. Well, meaning, oh, this is going to make me like Elohim. She didn't realize that it's going to make you think you are that you can start deciding about these commandments and twist them a little bit. Well, you know, all right, Abel, I see you're bringing the the best of your flock, but you know what? I'm just going to bring some average vegetables for sacrifice. Well, we know which was the acceptable sacrifice. It was the best you had. Just change it a little bit. That's the difference. When these, and they're precious people, guys, you can be precious and be deceived you can be precious and really ignore the things that scripture it's not hidden it's i mean like we read it as plain as day today those scriptures have been there for thousands of years they're precious but the fruit is not fruitful there is such a thing as bad fruit and what will it do in the end it will destroy the relationship between brothers and sisters and often it's that feeling of intellectual insight or intellectual accomplishment it becomes the carnival. It's the Ferris wheel disguised as the Holy Spirit. And it's seductive. We're all, I mean, we're all descendants of Adam and Eve. We're all susceptible. And I tend to think that if there was some huge mistake we were making when Yeshua walked this earth, he would have spoken into it. He's spoken to everything else. It's not like he didn't leave four gospels and disciples and apostles who continue to write things down for us. It's like, did the calendar slip his mind? Or did he go up and worship at the temple? He wasn't even like the Essenes who wouldn't even go up to the temple anymore. They said, oh, that's not valid. Yeshua didn't care. He went anyway. I'll be an influence for good. I'll overturn the tables if it strikes me. But I will not neglect to go at the appointed times because the Torah still stands. You will go up to that appointed place at that appointed time. If he's Messiah Yeshua, he cannot refuse to do that. And if we are his disciples, we cannot refuse to keep the appointed times just because somebody has convinced us that we're not reading it right, that the Jews are just off on that. Yeshua never disputed that the Jews sat in Moses' seat. What he said is a bunch of hypocrites who aren't doing what they're preaching. The oracles of Elohim. What makes it so wearying is it keeps going around. People find things, you like, good grief, 20 years ago that was going through the internet. You haven't worked that one out. That's new to you now? And that's what the internet does. It just keeps generating it over and over and over. And if somebody hasn't read it, it's new to them. And so it's a new revelation. It's not new. It's this. I mean, guys, that calendar thing goes back to the time of Yeshua and the Essenes. And there's a reason they're not around anymore. It can't keep a congregation together. It can't do it. We have to draw near. Our brothers. And that's one of the work works that the appointed times do. The Shabbat and the feast, they draw us together. And if there's something that's splitting that, if there's something that's disrupting that's causing chaos to that, you need to take a really good hard look at it and say, Have people been on this ferris wheel before? Point. Something I learned on Sunday. And one of the things we learned, we were looking at the text where Jethro he walks up on Moses, and Moses sitting there all day long, judging the people, teaching them the Torah, settling their disputes, settling their cases, and the people had to stand all day long to get to Moses. Well, Jethro, very nicely, he doesn't tell Moses this is bad. He says it's not good. So everything's in the wording, right? It's in the delivery, how you package and place the words. He says, Moses, this is not good. He says, you're going to wear yourself out, and you're going to wear these people out. He's not just saying, Moses, this is hard on you. He's saying, it's hard on them. You need a, a second line here. He, he, taught, he teaches them how to set up the judges. Set up your lower courts. Set up appellate courts. And Moses, you be the supreme court. If it's too hard for them, they'll bring it to you. But Moses, you're not discipling anyone. And so they all have a different idea of what the Torah would say is the answer to their question. And they're having to come to one person. And he says, Moses, it's going to wear you out. And that Hebrew word there is naval. And it means like to fade out, to just like kind of wither on the vine. And Moses is doing a good thing. He's doing ministry. But he says, Moses, you're still a human being. Even doing good things for the people can be not good you can wither up. You might have a heart for these people and you might be willing to sit here all day long and listen to them. But in the end, you're human. You will wither on the vine. You can lose your joy. And if we can't serve him with joy, what can we serve him with? Nothing more than obligation? No. I mean, we will. If if that's what it gets down to, if we've lost our joy and we just keep going on obligation, he accepts that. But it's a relationship. He wants our joy. And he wants us to have joy in our ministry and our gifts and what we're doing for our family and for our friends and our congregation. He says, Moses, you've got to have help. And it's the same thing with so much of what's going through the, what are we going to call it? Hebrew roots, Messianic Judaism. I don't think they've got nearly the issues we've got. Whatever this thing is. There's way too much chaos. There's way too many Ferris wheels, tilt-a-whirls, teacups, cliffhangers, fun houses, freak shows. And so much of it, if we just took the time to learn a little bit of biblical interpretation, it's the questions we start questioning out loud, and we're like, okay, there's a better way to question that, like find somebody that would actually know. But when does the day start? Well, they couldn't possibly believe that it would start in the evening because the Jews say evening and morning one day. They based it on that. And you can tell all through the book of Leviticus, a day starts in the evening. But because there are certain passages that would make it hint that the day starts when the sun comes up, well, now that's got to be the answer. It couldn't be that the Jews know what they're talking about. You know the answer is yes, right? You have to know the context. Context is the first rule of hermeneutics. Context is everything. Know the passage you're reading. Know its context. And you'll know whether it's talking about daylight or if it's talking about a complete 24-hour day. But see, instead of going to a teacher who could help work you through that and teach you the rules of interpretation, we go to the internet or we group up with each other who might think a little bit like us. And before you know it... We're stuck at the top of the Ferris wheel. So many times there's answers, but folks, the leaders are getting worn out. There's only so much as a human being, a pastor, a teacher, an evangelist, a praise and worship leader can take. We need more discipleship. We need more people who are willing to give up something of their time to learn what we know. And you'll have to give up something to do that. I don't even want to tell you how much money I've spent on school. I don't even want to think about that figure. Alan probably doesn't either. Why? So I could learn the rules of interpretation. So I wouldn't be deceived when I read something. I would learn how to apply filters when I read something or even when I hear something. doesn't mean I'm perfect. It means that's what I've invested my time and my money in. Your leaders are going to have to have help. Otherwise, they will become weary and they will wither on the vine and they will not have the strength. They will not have the energy to do the job they want to do. And I know I'm preaching to the choir here, but I think there's lots of people out there that need to hear this. I can tell you, I could spend my entire day answering emails of carnival topics, and I'm thinking, I've been around since the late 90s. Where have you been? There's a systematic way of approaching these things, and if you don't have the elementary principles of the Torah portions, and see, we, we think those are boring, and we don't want to spend the time there. But see, if you don't understand the Torah portions, you don't understand the rest of it. You don't even understand Yeshua. And so, as much as possible, help your leaders. They're not perfect. We never will be until Yeshua comes. Neither was Judah. Judah had some significant character flaws, <laughs> but he repented. And he did his best. In the end, he did the best he could for the family. And in the end, sometimes we might have to lay aside some of these little carnival doctrines and do what's best for the family. Thank you for exploring the Torah portion with us. For information on this ministry, go to thecreationgospel.com. You can find links there for our newsletter, books, workbooks, Facebook and our YouTube channel.